Hello, business builders. Welcome to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we interview founders of America's fastest growing companies. Our mission is to arm you with the tools and the confidence to scale your own venture. So to that end, every now and then, we gladly welcome a non-founder leader, thinker, or influencer to help you do just that. I'm Drew McClure. My co-host is Jordan Mitchell, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Ladies and gentlemen, today on the podcast, we are joined by Dan Campbell. From the outside looking in, you could certainly paint the picture that Dan is a household name in the staffing industry. Dan started on the board of the American Staffing Association for 10 years, including chairman in 2014, and was elected to the Staffing Industry Hall of Fame by staffing industry analysts after being a regular on the list of the 100 most influential people in the staffing industry by Staffing Industry Review, six years running from 2011 to 2016. And all this makes sense when you peek under the hood and just get a sense of some of his experiences. Dan was the CEO of Source One Staffing in his late 20s, assuming I did my math correctly. Two years into the role, he decided he'd partner up with an old college roommate and founded Higher Dynamics in 2001. Their vision was building a staffing firm known for their loyalty to clients and high personal performance. He and his partner, John, certainly accomplished what they set out to achieve. In 2019, Higher Dynamics was recognized as one of America's fastest growing companies for the ninth time. They were awarded number one in staffing by the Atlanta Business Chronicle, also for the ninth time. Look, I'd be here all day if I continued listing their awards. Dan is currently a partner at MS South Equity Partners, and we're excited to have him on the show. Please welcome Dan Campbell. Thanks, Drew. And Yes, thank you, buddy. Thank you for being welcome, here. Man. Good to be here. Welcome to our humble little podcast here. Uh, so my first question for you is, again, this is a podcast featuring the journey of those fast-growing companies that went from nothing to the Inc. 5000 list. And we just use that as a, as a barometer, uh, as imperfect as it is, for evidence that your company went through a fast growth. Um, and where we like to start is just asking you this, man. Like, What series of events led you personally to start this company? Yeah, Drew. Um, well, first of all, thanks for having me, you and Jordan. And uh, what led me, I kind of backed into it. I can't say I tried. No, there aren't many people that, unless they have a family member in the staffing industry, graduate from college, so you know what I want to do? I want to get the staffing industry. That's right. So, so my role was, uh, so first of all, without going into the story, I, even though I did well in college, I, I didn't easily find a job. Um, and struggled for a little while, and then eventually, after about nine months, landed a job at Price Waterhouse in the corporate finance group, which was a great job. Did that for a couple of years. What I loved about that, it didn't matter your age or experience. If you worked the hardest and put in the most hours and knew the topic, you were the one that uh, got to really speak um, in a meeting with a bunch of C-level folks. And from there, I followed a mentor call uh, to a company called Argenbright or AHL Services that in the mid-90s, was a security guard company that morphed into an outsourcing company. And mm. in the four years I was there, we went from 80 to 800 million and went public. And my role was being the lead M&A guy. So once we went public, we did 13 acquisitions, but still grew organically by 26% a year. So that was my end. Yeah. So, um, so that was a great experience. And then I was hoping the 14 staffing, uh, 14th company we acquired was a little staffing company out in LA called Source One Staffing. And we had a valuation gap. And after trying to acquire the company and they flipped it and said, Dan, why don't you uh, come out here and be the CEO of the company? And I naively thought at age 28, I was ready to be a CEO. I yes. had grown a lot. So went out there. I was still single. Here's an opportunity to live in Manhattan Beach and went there and, uh, and made every mistake in the book. And thank goodness there were two owners that were still involved. And, uh, but it was a great experience, really learned a lot. We still doubled the size of the business. And then in uh, 2001, I knew I wanted to get back to Atlanta and worked out a deal to buy, when the economy started slowing down in 2001, had an opportunity to buy two of the offices and brought in my college roommate, uh, John F., as you had mentioned from the beginning, to start Higher Dynamics. So that's how... Um, we hired dynamics with born in June wow. 2001. Yeah. So, well, first off, it's just interesting to me that you got to ride shotgun in a fast-growing company like that 
early on in your experience with that insane growth. Um, what did you, were you even paying attention to the lessons there? Were there things as you were going through that experience that you thought, wow, this is, this is big to learn? Yeah, it was very unconventional. You basically had an owner that as uh, philosophy was, He'd rather have a billion-dollar company throwing off $10 million in profit than a $100 million company throwing off $50 million in profit. It was all about growth. It was less about profitability. And there was some method to his madness in that his belief, which I agree and have incorporated, is that it's easier to hire professional man managers and leaders later and improve the profitability than it is to hire those same people later to drive growth. Drive growth is something that really should be in the essence of that business. This guy was also, and the whole team was also very good at water cooler stories and were unbelievable, relentless stories and customer service to extreme. They didn't worry about how long the contract terms were, how many years, what have you. It was all about, you don't service your client every day. You don't deserve to keep it. So the level of service was, was pretty high. And then they brought in a real season management team, the, um, former number three guy at Apple and the wow. uh, president of PepsiCo uh, USA. And, you know, there were a lot of lessons that those folks, everything from the key of over hiring for key positions and nothing stunts a growth company more than when you don't, over, you can't over hire for every position, but for those key positions, how important it is. Because if you don't, then it's going to stunt your growth. So they were really good at doing that. Well, let's back up a second. So, that's interesting that he prioritized the growth at first. That's what it sounds like at first right. over the bottom line profitability. That's right. Is that something that you still see as kind of the chicken and the egg scenario? Like this one, it's not a matter of which one, but maybe which one first is easier to solve the second one later. Well, I, I, I've seen it all depends on your situation where you are. I mean, I'm currently a private equity partner. So if I went to my partners and tried to, uh, share that philosophy. I don't know how well that would go. Over. That's right. But, so I guess but, it's what seat you're sitting in, right? That's right. It depends <laughs> on the seat. But I do understand that there there is some truth to the idea that it's 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 more important to embed growth early. Not to say you should disregard profitability, but it's harder to embed growth. And if you can create that as a culture environment early on, then you it's easier to make up for the other things such as profitability and systems and process. Well, tell me about the overhiring part. What unpack that just a little bit for me? Sure. Is that just saying that certain positions are so critical that you'd rather mistake make the, make the mistake of overhiring for it? Is that what that means? That, that's what that means. Um, and, and at first, it, it means identifying within your organization what are those critical positions. But it's not just what are they today, but Drew, what are they in five years? What mm. are the two or three positions to get to where we want in five years? Are those critical positions? And then. What are we going to do to ensure that we overhire that? Because again, especially if you're building a business where culture is really important, nothing stunts growth more than hiring somebody who has a great attitude, a good culture fit, but doesn't have the capacity to be two levels above where you're hiring them for in a key position. And then all of a sudden you have to exit or change that person's position within the organization, which causes all kinds of issues uh, culturally. And, um, so that's what that That's so good. Um, so let's talk about when you actually stepped into starting your company, you had a little bit of that lesson or that, that, um, maybe that experience getting to go take over as a CEO, but now you're starting your own. What were some of, what was it like? Was it all fear, all excitement, a mixture of both? Like, what's that like to start the, your own thing? Uh, well, I, I would say one of the best things I did at higher dynamics was choosing my business partner, my college roommate. I, the, the, that was the critical piece. Um, John and I got along great. We complimented each other. We had talked about, just like you guys knew each other from Clemson College, John and I were freshman year potluck. He ran cross country. I played basketball at Millsaps. Uh, uh -huh. he, he never got to be in college. He graduated college with a 4.0, and I didn't. I didn't come close to that. Me but we either. We complimented each other extremely well. And so I would say it really started with that. and. It was one of those after he spent eight years at KPMG, if I didn't grow the company and we didn't grow the company fast together and with our team, then I knew I wouldn't be able to keep him and he would get bored. So the early years was really motivated to keep him engaged, challenged, and 
that certainly worked out real well. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes you don't know any better and you're 30 years old and you start a business and things like a personal guarantee, especially at the time I was single and, you know, things go belly up, take my car and my couch and start over. Yes. In 2009, when I still had that personal guarantee and I was married with a family, with a house, with kids, it, uh, it, it was a different, it was different, definitely was a different mindset. Um, but the early years was all about being opportunistic, hands-on, uh, everything we could do. So we wanted to set a tone. I mean, what are examples of, you know, the, our very first, our, our second client actually went bankrupt and owed us $11,000 and at the time early. And again, we, we ended up raising a million, but when we started in 2001, we had a million dollars in debt effectively, 2 million in revenue and 70% with one client. So we were pretty, we were pretty handcuffed. And so when that second, second largest client or second client went bankrupt, um, you know, John actually went out there and said, okay, you're, it wasn't chapter 11, chapter seven, then we're at least getting our $11,000 in uh, furniture. And actually the speaker phone, we still have to this day, uh, you know, 19 years later as a result. So, you know, we wanted to set the tone there or our largest client in a track at the time, they ended up going, having that first winter, a really bad snowstorm and, we had trouble getting staff to come in and said, John, here's a great opportunity. We're not going to announce who we are. Let's just go to the warehouse and check in and we're going to work our eight hour shift and we're going to load the boxes. And I still remember the supervisor, kind of a hard ass. Uh, we had to put 20 units in the box. I remember within an hour of the ship starting and mentioning to John, Hey, I don't know who you are, John, but, uh, you know, you're not going to make it past the day if you can't count to 20. This is the third straight <laughs> box. You, you've only put 19 in there. And I just kind of leaned over to him. I said, my man, you're the CFO. If you can't count to 20, we've got to take a problem. This yes. is in the box. But, but uh, you know, it, it all worked out. But, it, you know, the early days were very, uh, very memorable. So if you look back at those early days, uh, and this is my favorite part of the podcast, we're often getting founders to do something they don't usually have time for which is to go back and reflect. If you go back to those early days, what were maybe some of the biggest strategies that you look back on? You're like, man, that was critical. Establishing that culture, the first key hire or whatever it was. And then what do you look back on and go, man, this would be an avoid a, a mistake either I wish we had avoided or I see a lot of other people in that first stage of growth making this mistake. Yeah, I would say for us, the best thing we did early on was we created a board of advisors. Um, we didn't overcomplicate it, it built over time. But that group really was instrumental in terms of keeping us on track. And we were looking to them as ones that would keep us, hold us accountable. And we met three times a year, you know, and um, we weren't in a position to pay them a lot of money. We allowed them all to buy equity, a small amount of equity at a um, discounted valuation. But that, that was one thing that definitely helped us and kept us on track and kept us honest. We, uh, one thing I would say, we were we were pretty good at telling the story and getting people excited about the and painting the vision of where we were going. With I'm sure a lot of your podcasts, they had the same. We couldn't afford in the early days to hire, you know, great employees. We hired people that were very passionate, um, that had high potential, that ended up being great employees. So we painted, I think, a pretty good vision in terms of what maybe we do differently or maybe mistakes early on we made, or at least I can tell you once I've made, uh, I, I would tell you I'd come back from a conference and um, come up with three new exciting ideas from the latest author or, yes, you know, and so that clarity of purpose, I, I was all over the place and I confused the heck out of the organization. Mm. Whereas over time I really learned to simplify the message and not changing it on a regular basis. And so, really provided clarity on organization yeah one of the things to kind of stay in the same vein but to uh kind of tie back something you mentioned in your early years uh when you're at source one made those mistakes uh, as a 28 year old ceo is there some stuff that you did when kind of setting up higher dynamics where you're like i'm literally doing this because of the bad experience i had there like what kind of reactions did you have when you uh started out with higher dynamics 
Yeah, I, I would say John and I sat down and we talked about what the culture was we wanted to build, and it was certainly different than the one at uh, Source One. While Source One was a great experience, and not many owners hand the reins to a 28-year-old. At the same time, it came to figure, find out that one of the two owners at the time was just 40 years old. She was never going to fully let go of the responsibilities, and you know, it. it for us, it was more about empowering. Within the staffing industry, you basically have three people you have to please. You have to please your internal employees, obviously your clients, and then the talent you put on assignment. And so I think what John and I came up with was we wanted to be employee-centric. You know, our feeling was it's kind of like Fred Reichel that's written all his books from the number one question, the loyalty effect. And the one thing he said in the book that really resonated and stuck with me was no company, and especially in the service industry, has ever been able to maintain client loyalty without first having employee loyalty. And so for us, it was all about what can we do to build employee loyalty, especially when we couldn't afford to necessarily pay the most. And so it, we became the only staffing company out of over 10,000 in the U.S. that had a deferred comp plan that was paid out solely based off what the retention rate was of our internal employees. Because we wanted to put dollars against that as a, wow. as a proof statement. And then it was, how do you build that culture and environment? And for us, it was building kind of non-negotiable qualities. What were those qualities that we wanted that regardless of the competencies of the individual position we were hiring for, that we, everybody needed to have. And we basically said, we came up with a list of 20, 25, and said, we're not leaving this room until we agree on five. And the second tier management, we did the same thing and came up with the same five. So those are a couple of things we did. We did. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah, you know, when we were, a, a friend of ours uh, has been a successful CFO, scaled, sold several companies, Silicon Valley, and now is in the private equity business. And he was saying the same thing. Culture was critical for them that and not just culture and here, here's what i want to ask you about and why i want to ask you about that is because culture is a buzzword you know and culture can i, I think it often be confused for perks where if you give the employees like a scooter to ride on right or they get um i don't know like a fountain machine in the office or something they're like man this is a great culture but what he was talking about and it sounds like what you were talking about is really what guides your decisions the things that keep us in common that like you're going to get a consistent quality here. You're going to have things that are driving important activities and results because we all have this in common. And he talked about that being critical. I'm interested in your experience of culture. Like, how do you think about culture? What is it more than just something on a website, like a mission yeah. statement or whatever? How have you guys thought about it? Yeah, for, for us, it's all about how we treat people and the level of respect. I mean, we've got core values. I won't go into all the details of it, but it's, it's treating people with respect. I mean, we have a saying at Higher Dynamics is what we do matters when we make a difference in people's lives. And we empower and encourage people to, whether you're a branch manager, regional manager, or you're a first-year on-site manager at the location, you have a certain amount of dollars you can spend. So you see those kind of opportunities to make a difference in people's lives that you think are important. You're empowered to do that, and then we recognize those. You know, that's an example for us of what culture is. And again, back to at the end of the day, too, you can lay out the best core values and mission statement and all those sort of things. But if you don't hire to that, if you don't have certain qualities you're looking for that are non-negotiable, then I don't care what you lay out as your core values. You don't, the people you're hiring don't match up with what you're trying to achieve. It's, it's going to be a tough to accomplish that. So when, when in your story did it go from good idea – Got some people, raised some capital. It's working. We're one of the companies to, whoa, this is working. Like we're taking off speed. What, what part of the story is that for you guys? Like when did that start really, turn, you know, the ignition really turn on to the next level? Yeah. Well, I guess that really depends uh, on who you ask. I would say, Drew, that's like, from John's and my perspective, we grew from two to, to eight to 17 million to 29, you know, kind of on from there. One of our early investors, a guy that had an accounting firm, uh, Bob Atkinson, I still remember him. We're four years in. And he said, well, now that it looks like you're going to make it, I'm like, now it looks like we're going to make it. You know, we're going to make it within six months. We're four years in. You now just think we're going to make it? Yes. So, uh, so I think that's the eye of the beholder. You know, in terms of kind of what, um, 
what were some of those inflection points? Uh, you know, for me, it was when we were, we talked about culture, we were able to hire some good people, but when we got recognized, I think it was 2006, um, as the number one best place to work in Atlanta, um, by the Atlanta Business Chronicle. Wow. That's really kind of a, and, the, and to be fair, the first two years we applied, we didn't even make the list. So we went from mm. not making the list to already jumping up to number one. And now in every market we op, uh, we operate, you know, we're viewed as the best place to work. So that was kind of a, knowing that's the culture John and I laid out, I, you know, I'd say we celebrated, you know, paying off our debt three years into the business. Um, that was certainly a, um, a moment. I, I would say, any, go ahead. Do you have any data? No. Maybe that's too forward of a question. I just mean like feedback on why you guys believe your employees enjoy working for you so much. Uh, yeah, the, yeah, we do get the data. We do have the feedback, and our philosophy too is you know being a best place to work is you know um, is a journey, not a destination. And we're never gonna. To your point, it's not about just the perks because eventually those perks become expectations. Right. It's more about how you treat people and how they treat each other it, and everything from, you know, what are some of those signs that we know that we've kind of got there. It's, it's when the, it, you know, uh, we studied a lot of the Patrick Lencioni and I read all his books and the five dysfunctions of a team and how everything talk starts with trust. And once you have trust, it's about conflict and then you move up the triangle. And so I would say we had a high degree of trust and we were able to get to the point where in an organization, it was not about top-down accountability. It was peer-to-peer mm. -peer accountability. And there was enough trust built up that people would call each other out, you know, around performance or wanting to achieve goals versus just relying on kind of a tiered system of managers just doing that. So I, I, I'd use that as a you know, good example. I love that. Yeah, that's a game changer. You know, with my kids, the difference in me leading my kids and my kids leading my kids that's uh, you feel like you're on to something. It doesn't happen often, but my seven-year-old the other day was enforcing some of our values to my four-year-old. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is different. <laughs> this is different when employees start naturally motivating each other and call, you know, not calling each other out. We use calling it, calling it up, yeah. right, where you call each other up, right? Um, that seems critical. My other question for you uh, is just, man, why are you different? If you were to think about all the other hiring companies and why yours has grown so fast, you know, what what's going on, man? Like, why are you guys out outpacing people like this? Yeah, I, again, I, I think it would, it would start with the the core leaders that we have. I think we have a really core group of leaders we could build around that people want to follow. And then I say the board of advisor was a great guidance. I don't think many companies, especially early on, I mean. When we were 10 million, we were acting as if we were 25 million. When we were 25 million, we were acting like we were 50. When we were 50, we were acting like we were 100. When we were 100, we were 300. Today, higher dynamics is over 300, and we're acting like we're half a billion. So I think always acting like that bigger organization, and uh, bless you for what it takes in order to uh, in order to get to those next levels. I, I would say, um, yeah, again, being employee centric. Not all staffing companies are employee centric. They certainly don't have what we have in terms of the deferred comp plan. I would say uh, we have extended hours. And so for us, it's about what's convenient for the uh, candidates, the talent, not what's convenient for us. So we're open on Saturdays, we're extended hours. We're, our office, instead of your typical staffing of it has three people, our average office is 12 people. That allows a lot easier for those extended hours um, and to be open on the weekends. Uh, and again, I think it's just, the caring nature of the people we hire is kind of a non-negotiable quality. We, you know, we're big believers that um, it's interesting. I've kind of gone full circle in my career that I started in finance and investment banking and it's very, it's 90% men all left brain. And then for 20 years, the staffing industry is, uh, you know, 80, 70, 80% women. It's now much more about EQ and right brain, and now I'm back at private equity, and I see the full circle of how important it is of really being sincere and people. I mean, once you, if you can connect with somebody's heart, uh, connecting with somebody's heart is much more important, in my opinion, than their head, and they'll mm -hmm. run through those walls. So, I mean, I'm a big believer in the, the saying, 
you know, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, just, just as a general philosophy. Yeah, uh, I love that. And uh, I think it's evident. I mean, it's evident in your website. It's evident in your story and everything you've just shared to us right now. I want to go back to talking about uh, spotting talent and their capacity because that is, that is the component of like, hey, culture fit matters so much and finding people that fit your cultural values that will hold each other accountable. That is the right brain emotional side of the business. But you also talked about something that's equally important, which is they also have to have a capacity a couple levels below or beyond where, where we're going to invite them in. How are you, how, how did you guys either formally or informally spot that to so, go, you know, I think this person's got capacity. Um, yeah, no, I, I would say only through trial and error and, and yeah, Jordan, you've met Sonia. Sonia has been with us now going on 13 plus years. I mean, she's the one that really brought the, the idea and concept of being much more thorough in our interview process. We, we utilized the, the top grading methodology and, and started doing that in 2003, long before anybody started using that. Uh, I would tell you, we, we, we definitely uh, do more extensive uh, reference checks than what you typically see in hiring. I'd say the majority of the uh, I know the majority of people we hire even today and the size we are today come from referrals. And uh, we have we have tracked it over the years that people that come from referrals versus other sources and we're a staffing company, so but generally you know work out better. And so we've uh, you know that's that's been a big source. And then again back to you know there's no better indication of future performance than past performance. So track record is really important. Um, you know, and our other non-negotiable qualities that we look at. Uh, and, we, you know, we kind of have, it has to be universal, uh, and our interview process includes multiple people at different levels. It's interesting for our key kind of corporate positions, we call it home office positions over the years. There have been times where the management team's been really excited, but then our last interviews with the, the team that the, that, that individual, that the work for this individual, and we've had a couple candidates that, that they exited because they just didn't feel like they were, you know, back to another Lencioni book, the ideal team player, that person that really is, and how they treat people at all levels, not just, just, not just up, but down, down the, you know, the org chart as well. I love that. So you've mentioned a few things that seem like they're a part of maybe your business philosophy or growth philosophy. One of them was the employees first. And what I mean by philosophy is that you're usually picking one thing over another that you're weighting something a certain way. Uh, and in this one, it was hiring the right person with a capacity at least two, you know, levels beyond what we're currently hiring them for. Does anything else come to mind in terms of what you would say is your growth or business philosophy? Yeah, I, I mean, I would say so much about how we pick up new clients. Uh, and you know, for us, it's a given that the, that we're going to be able to provide a good staffing service with good people. It's what else mm. can we do to help them out? Um, right. And both individually and professionally. And I think we're very good at what we call water cooler stories and landing large pieces of new business about in those presentations, not just talking about staffing, but and I, if you want to I can go into an example, but some of the unique things that we do that, really don't have anything else don't have anything to do with staffing, but proves how much we've been creative and learning more about them as individuals or about their business. Um, it's helped us land a lot more. And again, then it comes down to, you know, having people in our organization uh, and we have a philosophy that everybody sells that, you know, we have a higher retention rate of people. We just don't have the churn and ultimately that churn catches up with you in terms of growth. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of the work that we do as coaches is, is reducing that churn. Just when someone hits a natural plateau or there's an issue and helping them continue to grow and evolve with the business and how much that saves, you know, how much that saves the business and not having to go through that churn. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's another thing that's been an, an intrigue of Jordan and I, both on our own journey, starting our own business, as well as walking with other business owners, is that you know the organization goes through an evolution. Right. There's the idea as you had it when you started. And then there's all the pivots you couldn't foresee coming that your organization, almost like a child had to grow up and adapt. But then right alongside it, the leadership's doing the same thing. 
you know, their own capacity is having to grow. Their own stress mechanisms are having to change. Their capacity issues are getting addressed. What's, I want to go to the human side of this. Yeah. Just for you, if you're willing to share, sure. where have you seen yourself have to grow and evolve with your company just as it's doing that? Yeah, I, I would say one of those have been simplifying the business. And I can't say we always simplified the business. We found ourselves astray from simplifying and it slowed us down. What's an example of that? It, we had this great growth in the first five years of the business and still to being happy in commercial staffing, staffing people, warehouses, distribution centers, call centers, and office support. We strayed and said, boy, it's, it seems sexier to staff professional staffing folks. So we opened up a finance and accounting division. We opened up a pharmacy division. We opened up a sales executive search business. And, you know, again, one of our board members said, listen, uh, instead of, you can be successful at anything, but you can't be successful at everything. And uh, we, frankly, weren't very good at financing accounting staff, and certainly not at the higher level. Wow. We, so we ended up closing that down, and the sales executive search business, we spun back out. We had some success, but spun that back out to the guy that, that had joined us for that. And then the pharmacy business, we ended up selling that to Jackson Healthcare in Atlanta, which so once we focused just in our space, uh, we saw accelerated revenue growth. At the same time, you know, we started with an office in Atlanta and an office in Reno, Nevada. And, but the, the business, we were the number one staffing provider for Starbucks around North America, all their roasting facilities and distribution centers, but they offered remote on-sites. Well, the model changed and Starbucks said they wanted us to have a physical offices there. And Delta stopped having direct flights to Reno, so it would take seven hours to get there. Thinking was, why in the world are we? Do we have an office that far away? When you know how much easier it is to open up an office in, for example, Greenville, South Carolina, ninety minutes away. And why not? We we figured out that there was in our type of staffing, there was eight billion dollars of our kind of staffing within a six-hour drive time in Atlanta. Wow. Why were we all over the place? So we sold the um, the Reno business, and that was one of the benefits of being on the board of the American Staffing Association, being really tied into the industry. Is we knew a group in Employee Bridge where John and I had a relationship with the CEO and CFO, and said instead of running a process. Um, this is what we're looking at in terms of value. You trust us. We trust you. We think we can close it a lot quicker. And that's what we ended up doing. And that really simplified the business. Um, wow. Yeah, I would say and the other thing that comes to mind is you talked about what made you different. I think it's a, as you evolve as a business, you go from being opportunistic to being more intentional. And so we have five growth strategies and for each one, we talk about whether that's an opportunistic strategy or an intentional strategy. You almost always inevitably when you start your business are much more opportunistic. And as you get bigger, you don't really have much of a choice. You need to be more intentional. So even when we started higher dynamics, part of the reason we were, we grew the way we did was counter to what you think, meaning one of our uh, board members, Celeste Bottorf had a, you know, she, we provided great coaching in our first year and said, Dan, if you want to be the best staffing company and, and biggest in Atlanta, you know, why don't you start by being the best and biggest in Gwinnett County before you own Gwinnett County? How about you own Duluth? Before you own Duluth, how about three miles from your office? So it was really kind of that own your side of the street strategy. Wow. That actually accelerated our growth. That's huge. That is, I mean, that is huge. So a few things stick out to me there. One is that phrase, we call them bombs, when, when there's truth that's, that kind of you know, snaps your head back, is you can be great at anything, but you can't be great at everything. And I just, so my, I, I tend to lean more towards paying attention to, to patterns of behavior and mindset and psychology and that kind of stuff. Uh, I just have noticed the, the human stress tendency to when, when faced with pressure or need to grow or survive, we spread out everything. You know, just maybe that's the opportunistic language you were using, okay. where if it'll pay, I'll take it, right? And so you start spreading out your efforts, you start spreading out your business model, and it feels strategic. But it sounds like what you're saying is really counterintuitive, is it's diluting your business, or it's, you know, all that ROI is not the same. And you guys started simplifying and bringing it back into a narrow focus, which did that feel scary to you? Because people we work with, it always feels scary when you're saying no to things that kind of work 
in order to bet more fully on more of a narrow space. How was that for you? Yeah, no, I think that's, again, back to the trust. You build advisors you know, that you trust and you see more and what they've accomplished. And you hear it enough from different people, not just our board, but YPO and other organizations or being on the board of ASA. And then it eventually come around. I can't say I, I got on board the first time I heard it. Amazing right. what a recession will do to cause you to rethink things in 2009, which really allowed us to the clarity we needed to make that decision. And then you can appreciate as you guys focus on growth companies, it seems counterintuitive that you would actually sell assets along the way mm. um, versus just trying to grow as fast as you can. But believe it or not, selling that Reno operation provide and selling our pharmacy business provided us great capital and focus to actually allow us to grow faster. Uh, wow. You don't see a lot of growth companies sell pieces along the way. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that recession and, you know, uh, so Jordan and I have been in this business separately for years now, but in the last six months really uh, is when we formed our own company and kind of merged together just similar to you and your college roommate. Yeah. Um, and it happens to be when, you know, a few months in COVID hits. Uh, and so we had this similar experience of like, okay, this is either going to be a major setback or a moment of opportunity. And we had coached enough people had been enough, enough a part of these processes to go, all of our instincts right now are telling us to go wide, but we're going to choose to go narrow. So even in our pre-conversation before we started recording, we told you like, yeah, we used to be more broad. We used to you know, work with people over here and work with people over here. But it wasn't until COVID that we said, what are we going to specialize in? And that was really just similar to you, us trusting our advisors. We have some amazing mentors in our life and people we've learned from that we're saying the same thing, like everything in you is going to tell you to go broad. We're going to make you go narrow. And uh, man, that has been such a life lifeline. I wonder for anybody listening right now, that could be a big bomb for them is just saying your instincts might be lying to you. You know, they might be telling you to go do anything and everything uh, when really need to specialize more. Um, so man, thank you for that. That's huge. I want to ask you about the advisors. Um, you know, did you have anything that, that, led you to say now's the time is it as soon as possible or is there a time to bring them in and then also is there something you're looking for that would make someone a great advisor versus either a wasted seat or potentially a not a, a bad advisor if you will yeah it, it, for us it was less about um, maybe looking for certain types of people per se as it was of who were people that we do or came across that were widely respected, that had grown much larger businesses, but also had some level of entrepreneur bent to them. Uh, and we just grew in that, it just grew from there. I would tell you, we started with four, we ended up with nine, not including John and myself. Um, the first meeting that we had, um, the, you know, they were very encouraging and said, you guys are doing a great job. And we said, guys, that's not, why we put this board of advisors together was for you guys to tell us how great we were, what we were doing right. We want you to push us and challenge our thinking. And, you know, careful what you ask for that next board meeting. They kicked our ass, but it was yes. exactly what we wanted. And what was great about it, is if you talk to them independently, probably one of the things I'm most proud, and they were all investors. They all owned at least 1% of the, the company that they bought into. Um, was that they really enjoyed their time together. And what was interesting is, I think it was the second meeting, we decided to go, since we had an office in Reno, out to Lake Tahoe, invited them all out. And it's interesting how you have different personalities. And you have some personalities that it doesn't matter if it's the first time they've met a group of people, they're gonna be outspoken and share, and they don't care about being controversial. And then some are gonna be you know, more uh, calm or more reserved until they get a feel for the other advisors. So kind of building that relationship outside of the, um, the meeting and those personal connections, I think allowed everybody to be much more open. And I think one of the things we did that was a best practice for our board meetings was we would start every board meeting off with, here are the six to 12 ideas you gave us from the last board meeting. And here's where we are on executing. And if we chose not to follow your advice, this is why and where we are. So we started off with, you're not wasting your time. Even though you have a vested interest, we wanna let you know that 
we're hearing what you say. We can't promise we're going to execute on a hundred percent. So I think it provided a level of engagement. And, you know, I, it's certainly one of the more proud moments, uh, you know, in my journey, in addition to being that best places to work first time we went in 2006 was when we sold the majority of higher dynamics in 2016, that, um, that those advisors, those early board members from one, especially the ones early days made more than 25 times their money. Wow. Their investment. So, and so we still keep in touch with all of, all of them. So it's a really special group of people. Man, that is something certainly to be proud of. There's, it feels like there's fewer and fewer people that can actually bring a true, true, uh, return to the to the investors um so that's amazing man uh, i want to reflect back to you just a few things i heard before we get into the lightning round see if i'm hearing this correctly so if we're packing apart if we're taking apart your story and higher dynamics a few things that stick out to me uh one you know i don't know if you've ever heard that african proverb where it says if you want to go fast go alone if you want to go far go together there's so many parts of your story that are about going together whether that was the culture you were building the fact that you brought in your college roommate, instead of just a solo CEO, you know, you brought in a partner, you brought in a board of advisors early. And in a sense, you actually, you actually um, challenge that a little bit, that it's actually, you're going to go far and fast together. And we've experienced that with team uh, just saying, yeah, it's almost like the first mile might feel slower, bringing someone else's input in, bringing someone else's advice in, but Even ultimately in my dad, I didn't tell you that. Did I? Really? Five years after I started the business, a lot of times, entrepreneurs will follow their parents or fathers. I did the opposite. My dad took early retirement at age 63, was the president of a bar. And after three months of playing golf, driving my mom crazy, she's like, you got to go back to work. He says, well, if I go back to work, it's got to be with one of my two sons and my younger brother. I can't, can't see my dad and him working together. You know, they have a good relationship. So uh, asked my dad to join the business. And so we worked together for more than 10 years, which is really special. Uh, wow. Additional college roommate, so. Wow. So, okay. Yes. So that, that's a great example of, of going together. Um, and, and coaching brings that to mind. We're like, there's so many moments that whether it was a book or an advisor or someone in your life that gave you a key piece of in, insight that seemed to steer it in a critical direction. Uh, and that's, a, that's, that's not just to speak to coaching. That's to speak to you and to the leadership that you are at a place of receiving, you know, that humility of, I don't think we actually know everything. So we're learning as we go uh, is really critical. And then it also sounds like the importance you place on your employees, on the quality of the workplace, on the culture you're creating on really betting on if we invest in them, it will lead to the bottom line. And that's, that's some of the interesting research that's come out, you know, in the last few years of how employee engagement's actually directly tied to bottom line profit right? That's, that those things are actually correlated. Uh, so that's interesting to me. Is there anything that we haven't touched on that you look back and you're like, man, this is, this is something that we got to say. Yeah. It's, I would say that, you know, one of the things I know you guys were asking the question of what qualities you look for and who have some of your best employees been, believe it or not, we've uh, reflecting on that. It's really the people that were the most self-aware, which is interesting. It's not really yeah. a quality necessarily, you see, but People that really understand themselves and the straight releases have tend yeah, and those we talk about having old souls that really perform the best. And so, uh, and recognizing what everybody's strengths are. I can tell you where higher dynamics is today and where we're going to the next level for 500 million and uh, a billion dollars plus. You know, we, we have a CEO today that frankly I, I'm convinced is better positioned to lead the company as a CEO than I would be today. And, uh, you two would be proud to know he's a proud Clemson grad and on the athletic director board. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Bill, Billy Milam and Billy's previous job was president of racetrack. So he was at a, a much larger organization back to over hiring for key positions. And so, um, you know, I, I think just recognizing what your strengths and weaknesses are and always looking to, you know, not be satisfied with the status quo and, you know, how can you improve things? whether that's bringing in a private equity partner that allows you to do acquisitions to grow and allow your employees to have more opportunities or bringing in a, you know, new CEO that's you know, got the potential and has already done a great job on the culture side and taking it to the next level. So I'm really excited about where higher, you know, I'm still an owner in higher dynamics and really excited about the 
team we have today that's going to lead us to the next chapter. Man, that's critical. Self-awareness. Again, we, you haven't been a part of the other interviews we've been doing so far, uh, but that just keeps popping up again and again, whether it's the owner himself realizing like the last interview we did, he basically said, I knew what I was good at and I knew what I wasn't. And I hired for what I wasn't good at. And it's like, man, that seems to be, if you can cascade that down through the organization where people truly know what their superpower is and they know how to really give that as a gift to the organization. And then the question is, what do you do with what's not your superpower? You know, we always talk about either eliminate it or delegate it, or at least if you can't do either of those two, get it up to the water line, like strengthen it enough where it's not killing you. Right. But at least knowing what you're great at, what you're not great at. And just at a numbers perspective, you know, the Pareto principle, just the numbers idea of like, this is going to affect the productivity or the result you're going to get if you can maximize what you're great at and minimize what you're not great at. Uh, so that's, I love that. That's, that's brilliant. Uh, all right, Jordan, I know we're coming up on uh, his hard cutoff. So if you could give us the rapid fire questions for him. Yes, sir. Uh, all right, Dan, here we go. Uh, rapid fire question number one. If you could ingrain one message into your entire organization, what would it be? Uh, yeah, I, I would go back to what I mentioned earlier is the, important, the importance of engaging a person's head is more important than, or heart more important than engaging their head and yeah. really focusing on uh, that other person, what's in it for them. And to me, the best opportunity to help people is when there's clearly an opportunity where there's nothing in it for you that you can prove and show that you're genuine about that. And yeah, uh, that would be it. Uh, the, uh, just like you guys are ferocious learners I, I've always read. And I, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting with the Michael Jordan, uh, yes. The last dance, the last dance. Yes. you know, going on right now. I mean, I don't know if you guys ever read Dean Smith book and, but uh, that one always stuck with me too about, what made him such one of the greatest college coaches is it didn't matter if you were Michael Jordan or the 12th guy on the bench. They, everybody knew that he cared more about them as people than what they did on the court and would track, stay with them for 30 years after their wow. careers. And so, you know, in knowing that that's the last dance that's kind of on everybody's mind right now, I thought it should. Yeah. It's an MJ. I love that. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Um, all right. Uh, being completely honest, what's the secret fear that keeps you up at night? Uh, what's the, the the secret fear that keeps me up at night is is probably um, being complacent, feeling like I'm not growing, uh, just, uh, not pushing my. Nothing motivates me more than when somebody says I can't do something, and so you know, am I giving it all um, in terms of whether it's higher dynamics or being a better spouse or a better father or better partner here at M South. So, you know, am I really giving my best to the people that I care the most about? I love that. Um, that's golden. What's the, uh, what's the dream result that you feel like you're driving towards every day? Yeah, I would think that it would depend on the context, like for higher dynamics, a, a couple would be maybe, uh, you know, we talk about our vision being the number one staffing company to a friend i think as it relates to employees don't we put them for yeah to me 30 years from now i'd love to look back and say higher dynamics created more future leaders in the staffing industry than any other staffing company for what we yeah. stood for what we trained developed wow learned. So, uh, that's awesome that, that would be it from the higher dynamics that's awesome uh what's the single best advice you've ever gotten growing your business and what's the single worst <laughs> Uh, let's see, um, a single piece of advice, probably a couple of things I've talked about, whether it's when we are growing our business, less is more owning your side of the street to, uh, over hiring for key positions, the simplifying the business, don't overcomplicate. I mean, I used to think early in my career, the smartest people, most impressive people are the ones that could talk and complex terms and come to realize it's the ones that could take complex things and put in real simple terms that everybody understands. So yep. that would probably be the best piece of advice. Uh, in terms of worst piece of advice, it would be um, diverging from the core. You know, there's, uh, there's, you know, I, I've known, I'm sure you guys have some similarities, but I certainly have some ADD issues. And so always looking yes. at the, at the 
at the shiny object and what's over there. And boy, let's go ahead and uh, and see if we can't grow on this other area versus really yes. staying disciplined. And if we are going to pivot, really make sure there's a lot of thought behind it versus you know just the latest sexy thing. Absolutely. Go after it. If you yeah. could have heard the conversation we had last week with our employees about <laughs> about Jordan and I trying to figure out if we were chasing a shiny object or not. We are highly aware of, <laughs> exactly. of our tendency to do that. So, yes, yeah. we, we, oh, we uh, I think you're in a great position. I mean, this is certainly a tough economic time, but you know, we we started in 2001 and I'm sure you've seen it too, but some of the best companies in history started during recessions, whether that was yeah. Walt Disney, Hewlett Packard, Microsoft and you know, it, it, you allow, it proves it, it, you don't have the luxury not to be disciplined. That's you right. Discipline early on versus sometimes you start during good economic times and you have a downturn. It's actually more difficult. Yeah. I think you guys are in a good position. Man, I appreciate that. Final question. Yeah. Uh, if you could hop in a DeLorean, you go back for five seconds to your past and shout one thing to yourself from the driver window. What time, <laughs> like when would you go back? And what would you say to yourself? This is our favorite question, by the way. Oh, oh shoot. I didn't, uh, didn't get that one in advance. It's a great question. So what would I say? Yeah, to you, could be, you could be 21 and you shout, yeah. don't snort that line of Coke, or it could be <laughs> don't steal that money uh, or something less trivial. But what is it? Yeah. You know, it, it would probably ring true from uh, – high school to college to really throughout my career at the end of the day life's all about relationships and pouring into those relationships and they come back tenfold so it's all about the relationships and don't get caught up in other things that avoid those key relationships and that's beautiful sage words sage words from dan hey thank you so much uh we're at the end of a long work day for everybody and you took time to, to come on here and share your wisdom with the up-and-coming businesses uh, Dan, thank you so much, buddy. Yeah, absolutely. Really enjoyed it, guys. Yes, yeah, sir. Sir. Touch. Yeah, we will. Thank you, sir. All right. Take care. Okay, friends. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Head to zero to five thousand dot com for exclusive tools to grow your business. That's Z E R O. T-O-5000.com.